Hello and welcome to the ASB Investment Podcast, a show that keeps you up to date on markets and helps you make smart choices with your investments. These are entirely our own views and that of our guests. It's not investment advice, but we know plenty of experts at ASB that'll be happy to chat if you need. BlackRock is the world's largest investment management business, and joining me today on this podcast from Singapore is BlackRock's Asia-Pacific Chief Investment Strategist, Ben Powell, who's been on several earlier podcasts, and a first-time guest, Iris Davila, who's the Head of Investment Stewardship at BlackRock Australia. We'll be discussing some of the key themes for businesses and investors that have been highlighted in BlackRock CEO Larry Fink's annual letter to the leaders of businesses BlackRock invests in. But before we get stuck in, like I always uh, like to do, I want to set the scene for um, people listening so they can imagine where we're all coming from. I'm recording this from my office at home, even though we've um, got a greater degree of freedom than um, last time when we chatted, um, Ben. And uh, hopefully my cats will keep uh, quiet. And you're in Singapore, Ben. On the last podcast, you uh, were planning on importing Christmas uh, by bringing your parents out from the UK, but it sounds like that got a little bit derailed and you've got a young family to manage. How did that all work out? Yeah, uh, hey, CTB, great to be with you again. Unfortunately, uh, we had to uh, delay, let's say delay, not derail. Uh, I was going to bring my parents across uh, alas, Omicron, uh, uncertainty around quarantine, all of that stuff made it just uh, too tricky. So we, uh, we're going to delay my folks coming over for a few months. But Christmas, it's kind of peak Christmas. My guys are six, two fives and a three. So uh, the airplane didn't make it. But uh, thankfully, Santa's sleigh did. And we had a great time. So uh, they were two halves, I guess, a bit disappointing on one hand. But on the other hand, you know, a lot to be thankful for, of course. Yeah, it's um, it's just one of those uh, times where the best laid plans can't always be uh, executed, no matter how much you plan. And Iris, you're calling in from Australia today. How's things going for you? Hello, and thank you so much, everyone, for uh, letting me speak to you today. Nice to uh, speak to everyone. I'm in Sydney on a cloudy, overcast day, I must say, in Sydney, and uh, I am joined in a pretty full house. Uh, unlike Ben, I did manage to get my parents over from the U.S. Uh, for Christmas. So I am with my two parents, my mother-in-law, my two children and two dogs. Oh, wow. You are very busy. And um, we've heard from Ben in earlier podcasts and uh, thankfully he keeps coming back. But it's your first recording with us. So can you tell us a little bit about your role as, as Head of Investment Stewardship and your, and your background? Your accent and your first answer gives a little bit away, but tell us a bit more about your role with BlackRock. Absolutely. So I am part of a broader investment stewardship team. Uh, I'm very happy to say it's one of the largest teams out in the market. And as a team, our job is to act on behalf of clients and to speak and engage with the companies that we own uh, in our overall portfolios to promote long-term sustainable business practices at the companies that we own. And so those conversations can have a variety of flavors, and I'm happy to discuss it a little bit more, but uh, we're really trying to both engage with the companies and also vote the proxies on behalf of clients. Well, this is, this is going well so far for me. It sounds like I've got the two right people onto this um, podcast. And I'm going to um, stick with you, um, Iris, because uh, I think with um, your background, um, you're in a great position when we're talking about this letter. 
us people in investments have uh, probably very familiar with it. But for listeners out there, this might be the first time they've heard of this letter that uh, BlackRock sends out each year to business leaders. So can you just give us your thoughts on why Larry Fink writes these letters and why they're so important? Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, again, a lot of it's grounded in our fiduciary duty. And first and foremost, we always say that we are fiduciaries on behalf of clients. And what has transpired, um, particularly, so Larry's been writing these letters now for 10 years. It's the 10 year anniversary. And uh, they really uh, started with a bit of a frustration, frankly, in terms of the narrative uh, in markets. And that's to say there was certainly a view from Larry and our other investors across the firm that uh, markets were too short-term focused uh, and that uh, because of a, lar- a large part of loud lo- voices, uh, you know, companies were very much overly focused on short term versus the long term. So if you go back and, you know, cast back in history, and I've, I've been very fortunate, I've been at BlackRock over 20 years, um, you know, I can I can say that this is certainly a continuation of the way we've always um, thought about, again, managing money on behalf of clients, which is through that fiduciary lens, and really trying to encourage companies that we invest in on behalf of clients to really think about the long term and to really try to promote, again, those long term sustainable business practices so that uh, we can protect and enhance the value of the companies that we own on behalf of clients. So it really began with that. And through time, it has uh, you know evolved. Um, I think uh, the one that really hit the mark was the letter on purpose. And and, you know, we can talk about that a little bit, if you like, uh, you know, a couple years ago, we really made a mark in terms of um, say, talking about climate risk and sustainability risk as an investment risk. And that's something, again, we can talk a little bit more on. And uh, this year, you know, we're talking about stakeholder capitalism, and it really does bring all of these concepts together that, um, you know, you really need to be, these are all things that are very much grounded in that long-term view. Yeah, it's really refreshing, because even though, um we all talk about how big BlackRock is. At the end of the day, you're managing money on behalf of, of mums and dads and people saving for their retirement who uh, who have decades, not quarters, that they're focusing on, right? And uh, and this seems like a good way to tie that into the messages you're sending to businesses. Absolutely. And like I said, I mean, I, again, I've been fortunate enough to be at BlackRock for a very long time, and that's certainly always been the ethos that we have operated under. It is not our money. It's not Larry's money. It is, you know, your money. And so we need to make sure that we are behaving and uh, in the way that it garners the trust of the clients that we manage money on behalf of. And therefore, it is incumbent on us to continue to, to discuss and to talk to companies and make sure that they're very much focused on that long-term perspective. Yeah. Now, within the within the letter, and you've mentioned it already, um, stakeholder capitalism. I mean, most listeners are hopefully familiar with the idea of capitalism and even shareholder capitalism. This idea that we learned at university that the goal of a company is to maximise wealth for shareholders, etc. But we're talking about stakeholder capitalism here, which is a uh, a subtle difference. Um, and this seems to be really reflected and highlighted in this uh, letter this year. So tell us a little bit about that and and how that's influencing things. I think importantly, um, and particularly during the last couple of years, as we've seen through this global pandemic, it's very clear that uh, we need to be thinking beyond just direct shareholders, which I think is that old, um, you know, Milton Friedman notion. And it really is that companies very much need to be focused to be competitive uh, and to, again, try to deliver long-term sustainable returns for clients or for your shareholders 
it really is incumbent for you to think about uh, just beyond, uh, you know, your direct shareholders. And one of those important stakeholders is your employees, which we can talk a little bit more about. Uh, you know, obviously, if you don't have any employees and you're not keeping them happy, it's very difficult to have uh, operational sustainability or even profits. Uh, you know, it's important to think about uh, the, you know, your clients and your customers and be customer and client focused. Um, that's an, another important stakeholder um, broader than just your shareholders. It's also very important to think about the communities that you're operating in and, you know, this concept of license to operate. Uh, and so companies that we've seen that have done well over the years, again, I'll continue to come back to this long-term view, are those companies that have really been focused and taken into consideration those broadly three other you know, groups, the employees, uh, the clients slash customers, and the community that they're operating in. And it, 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 it always uh, surprises me a little bit how this is, um, you know, this is so controversial because again, you know, we're not looking at this through a um, any kind of um, you know, I think the term that Larry used was woke prism. We're looking at this really, I mean, this is good old fashioned common business sense, right? If you're not looking after your employees, if you're not looking after your clients, and if you're not looking after the community, I don't understand how you can possibly operate uh, in, in you know, and, and be profitable for your investors, your shareholders. So, uh, you know, they're not mutually exclusive ideas by any means. And so it really is trying to draw out that concept to say that we need to be mindful of all of these things if we do, once again, want to fulfill our fiduciary duty, which is to provi provide long-term sustainable returns for clients. Yeah, I, I quite like that uh, woke term in there. It certainly, it certainly captured some headlines and maybe it'll um, you know, make some of our younger listeners uh, prick their ears up. And, and Ben, when, when you and I chat, and we can chat for hours about this, uh, although we won't do that to our poor listeners, but we often talk about macroeconomic developments like inflation and interest rates and economic growth and, and how they're going to influence your decisions. It's, a, it's an overlap between my world as an economist and, and yours um, within BlackRock. But sticking to the CEO letter, and, and, and as we've just been chatting about, these are really long-term themes. Um, and be, we've also talked, there's things about sustainability that will come up, these employment uh, conditions driven by COVID. And changing um, sources of capital that are fueling market disruption. So, Ben, let's, let's get you in on the conversation. And my question to you, uh, and let's start with that capital market disruption. How does BlackRock bring these long-term themes into investment decision-making? How does this influence you doing your job? Yeah, thanks, CTP. So, so I'll say a couple of things. Uh, firstly, uh, I guess, how do we bring these themes into our investment process? The, the first thing I would say is they are a critical part of our investment process. So when I think about, I'll just give you an example, right? So we, we talk, of course, about the uh, the three letters of E, S, and G uh, under the overall sustainability kind of uh, uh, framework, I guess. So E, environmental, S, social, G, governance. And let's just riff on G for a second. So G, governance, I think just sort of taken for granted these days, right? So if we go back 20 years or so to the accounting scandals in the US uh, at the end of the last century, beginning of this century, uh, you know, I think uh, since then, investing in companies which are less likely to defraud you is like a really good idea, right? That seems to me to be fairly uh, straightforward. So I think G now is like fully, fully, fully incorporated into mainstream investing thinking. And I think uh, it feels to me, at least, uh, that uh, that E is on the path there. Actually, for me, at least, uh, surprisingly quickly, uh, environmental risks clearly can be inconvenient to uh, supply chains and more 
and there are environmental opportunities, which uh, I guess will segue into the second part of your question. You know, some companies are going to are going to see problems that need a solution, right? In the environmental space, they're going to provide that solution or be part of that solution, uh, and will benefit accordingly. So I think uh, the incorporation of uh, of ESG, I think, is uh, of course progressing and is becoming, as I say, it's not kind of an add-on. We don't do our investment process and then separately add on an ESG layer. It's foundational. And as I say, for G, I think that's kind of, to some degree, case closed. I don't think that's contentious at all anymore. Uh, ENS perhaps are more nascent, but that to us seems to be the direction of, of travel. Um, on capital markets, uh, uh, clearly, that's simply put, there's a lot of capital around. And we're seeing uh, uh, more and more startups get funded uh, across basically every industry you, and geography one could imagine. So, you know, for CEOs uh, that are out there, whether you like it or not, there are probably two 20-year-olds, two 20-something-year-olds out there thinking about how they can disrupt your business. Uh, they are coming for you, right? That's just a fact. And, and they're not just coming for you in their back bedroom. They're coming to you in their back bedroom with funding, right? That's the risk. So it seems to us that with the uh, abundance of capital, uh, that there is, and, and, and that like, seems likely to us that uh, it's going to persist. Uh, CEOs need to be adopting something of a disruptor mindset, even if they are a business of 150 years of tenure, because disruption is going to be increasingly uh, normal. I mean, that's a trend which has obviously accelerated over the last uh, decades, I think, and years, and seems, if anything, to have been further accelerated by the uh, pandemic, the move, uh, even faster move towards uh, technological internet web-based solutions and all of that. So it seems to me and to us, I think, that that's, uh, uh, as we think about this prevalence of capital, disruption is only going up the exponential curve, uh, and that's opportunities for, uh, for new companies. But for old companies, as I say, there will be those that flourish and, and look to, if you will, disrupt themselves to some degree, right, to become the next version of themselves. That's, uh, that's the companies that we like, right, of course. Uh, and sadly, there will be those companies who don't do that, who don't adopt the kind of longer term, how can I disrupt myself mentality, just focus maybe to Iris's point on, on this quarter's earnings. Uh, and I think, sadly, that's not going to cut the mustard in the disruptive world that we find ourselves in, uh, as I say. And that is only becoming more the case, it seems uh, It seems to me, CTB. Yeah, I, I agree. And hey, looking at some other things that we've already touched on a little bit, um, when I started doing these podcasts five years or so ago, it used to be hard to get through a podcast without talking about Donald Trump. Now it's hard to get through a podcast without talking about COVID. Um, and um, there's a couple of interesting points that Larry raises in the letter, which 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 touches maybe a little bit on the uh, on the S within the uh, ESG, uh, but but particularly in the uh, employment bit that Iris was talking about. Um, Larry raises some interesting points about employment, what what COVID's meaning for um, for employment. Um, what are your thoughts there, Iris? And 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 what were the um, what's what's BlackRock's take on on what's happening in employment? Thanks. And look, I, I think to pick up a point as well that Ben made, um, certainly in my world, in the stewardship world, when we're meeting with companies and we're speaking to them on various topics, uh, certainly G is something we cover. Uh, uh, the E is certainly become a little bit more well-established, but certainly in the COVID world, to, get, to bring it back to your question, it's really that rise of S um, that has uh, very much increased. And that really has hit home in this whole concept of human capital management. And it's one of the topics that we do speak quite a bit um, with the companies that we, again, uh, engage with on behalf of clients. And 
it is clear that through uh, this last few years that we've been working from home virtually and whatnot, that the paradigm has shifted quite a bit and the uh, momentum has shifted. Uh, and it really has brought forward, I think, a bit of a generational um, clash to some degree in the sense of, uh, you know, the uh, the younger workers, let's say, um, some of the desires in terms of the flexibility, what they're expecting from their companies, whether it be purpose, uh, whether it be uh, the additional mobility, whatever it may be, those issues have really come to the forefront. Uh, and you combine that now with this this very real issue that we are all facing, I think, in terms of border closures, uh, labor supply shortages, uh, you know, supply chain issues. Um, it seems to me that certainly the pendulum has swung to the employees versus the employers. Now, there will always be cynics out there to say that, you know, pendulums do revert and they do come back to, to, to the middle. But I think if you then couple that with um, a broader demographic shift, and I'm sure Ben can talk about this in a lot more detail and with a lot more education than I can, um, you know, it certainly seems that it is one of these longer term trends that we're going to continue to see. And so we see this from two perspectives, right? I, you know, we see this from the perspective of, again, when we're engaging with companies, it is one of the clear issues that they are facing in terms of, again, this is not a woke issue. This is a real financial risk and opportunity for companies. Uh, if you cannot uh, have enough employees to fulfill whatever orders, whatever you know, part of the economy you're in, that is a bottom line balance sheet issue. Uh, and so that is something you need to pay attention to. Uh, uh, human capital management and good human capital management is actually also an opportunity because it can be a very uh, distinguishing and competitive advantage for companies who do it well. And I think that's, you know, some of the points that Larry's trying to bring out. So it's not this issue of, um, you know, let's kumbaya. These, these are financial risk issues. And so companies that are managing these well will be in a better competitive and long-term position um, to ride out the ups and downs and the vagaries of the market. Markets. And so that's something that we see from, again, the perspective of when we're speaking to companies from a stewardship team, we really do spend quite a bit of time discussing the human capital management, uh, you know, the labor supply issues, shortages, et cetera. And what other things are you doing to try to retain and, and, and motivate your employees? Because these things are very, very important. And again, the last few years have only highlighted and exacerbated, you know, some of the issues that we've seen in the past with these topics. We also see this from an internal perspective. You know, again, uh, we have been very fortunate. We have, um, you know, we're a thriving uh, company, but we also spend a lot of time on this from our internal perspective. And so we want to be an employer of choice. And so we've had to focus on this ourselves from our own human capital management perspective. And it's really trying to combine those learnings and share them more broadly, again, uh, with the, you know, with our clients. And by the way, we get this also from our clients. You know, that's, let, let's bring it back to our clients. And when they're they're asking us questions when we're doing RFPs, you know, our clients basically want to know that we are a decent company and are treating our employees well. And so they will ask us about these topics and they'll ask us about our initiatives on these issues. So, uh, you know, I think long gone are the days that you are going to see that very traditional factory old fashioned style working and that, you know, a combination of whether it be flexibility, mental health, diversity and inclusion, all of these topics, woke topics, again, to put it into the vernacular, are actually bottom line issues. You know, they're important for companies to be maintained and well operated. Uh, so it's certainly something that we've seen um, is, is very critical to uh, today. And frankly, um, again, that long term perspective. Yeah, it, it feels like one of those things that, uh, to, to your point, there's it's something that's got to be managed well. There's no black and white answer. And, and, and within the media in response to this letter, I can see some pretty um, 
punchy CEOs saying, hey, remote work won't work and um, working from home is an aberration. Um, and I, I'm with you. I disagree a little bit. I, I'm a bit older than both of you. And I, when I started working um, in an investment bank, I had to wear a, a blue pinstripe suit and I could express myself with a tie. And uh, then when the internet started, we uh, thought, oh, we're going to be driven by technology. And we had business casual because we thought these tech people refuse to wear suits, so we're going to have to change our ways. And then we had the tech wreck and we're all back to wearing suits for a little while. But now here we are, thank goodness, wearing casual uh, clothes at work again. And, and, and the pendulum will will settle on some of these things. For us here, we're, we're, um, we're all at ASB enjoying a lot more flexibility. There's some things that have to be done in the office or in the, in the front line and, and branches. But likewise, there's a lot of people that are working way more efficiently now and, and COVID's been the, the catalyst for that. And, hey, so let's, let's turn to the environment. Um, this was a really interesting thing that I've been reading about. Um, and something I think that's quite, well, it's very complex. So here in New Zealand, we've just come out of lockdown. We're in the middle of an awesome summer and hopefully every listener's been enjoying that environment. Um, but, but that enjoyment of the environment certainly doesn't translate into a, consen- a consensus on investment beliefs um, here or around the world about this issue of um, decarbonisation. And um, BlackRock makes some interesting points uh, in, in, in the letter, and, I, and I'll quote so I get it right and we can discuss the comment. Uh, Larry writes, we focus on sustainability not because we're environmentalists, but because we are capitalists and fiduciaries to our client. But the devil's in the details here. And and what are clients of BlackRock and, and stakeholders thinking about decarbonisation? Starting with you, Iris, just with the points made within the within this year's letter. Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's fair to say that um, given we are a global firm, we have quite uh, diverse and divergent views on this topic, but it is clear that, um, you know, if we're going to go back to the analogy of the pendulum, that the pendulum has swung a bit towards uh, climate risk being um, incredibly important, again, through that prism of that financial and fiduciary risk management perspective, and frankly, an opportunity as well. And so, you know, oftentimes what we've said, sustainability risk, climate risk is an investment risk. What we've also said is, uh, you know, net zero, please, you know, companies that we invest in, again, on behalf of clients, can you please try to show us the path to net zero, short, medium, long-term targets? And why is this important? Again, it's important from two perspectives. There is a, a tangible risk issue attached to it. You talked about supply chains. You talked about climate being a disruptor. You know, there are tangible financial reasons that this is important, that we want to make sure that, again, through that risk management lens, that you are focusing on this and thinking about it, right? So there's that perspective. There's also, you know, I always say money talks. And there's, there is that, again, that capitalist perspective. And oftentimes, and, you know, I meet with a variety of companies, my team meets with a variety of companies, and I can tell you there are very, uh, quite a few cynics among some of the companies that we do meet. You know, I, I, we try to bring it back to this very um, simple concept of help us help you to some degree. Uh, we have seen the allocation of capital move in a certain way. We've seen, you know, $4 trillion into sustainable strategies. The majority of our clients are asking us for these type of strategies. And so, again, what we're trying to do is provide choice to clients. We have our traditional mainstream strategies, but we have sustainable strategies as well. And dollar for dollar, more money is flowing into those sustainable strategies. So if you're a company and you're not providing the appropriate risk and transparency and disclosures that investors are seeking and asking for, hence why we advocate TCFD, 
then you are actually going to miss out on money being allocated to you. Just for clarity, TCFD is an acronym for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Again, this is not this is not from a philosophical perspective. This is not from an environmental perspective. This is from a common sense dollar perspective. If you are excluded from an index for whatever reason, or if you're excluded from a client's um, investment parameters, that is less money that's going to flow your way. So help us help you provide these disclosures, provide this transparency, so that we can then go away and you know construct portfolios for clients and meet those client needs, right? So again, you know, these are the conversations we're having. So um, environmental risk is, is, is a risk, it's a financial risk, but it's also an opportunity. And then, you know, that gets to the point of the unicorns and the, and, and, uh, the phoenixes that are gonna rise from the ashes that Larry talks a little bit about as well. And there is a mm. lot of money and opportunity available for companies who can help solve some of these issues. And that is certainly, there's an appetite from our clients globally to try to, to want to invest in those strategies. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things here to think about as an investor and also as an investment manager is none of these things are like a light switch. Like investors can choose um, particular types of investments and companies can do um, ha- have their have their strategies. But, but we're all on this path to net zero or as, um, as BlackRock says, navigating the global energy transition. Um, and if we use um, fossil fuels in, as an example, it simply can't be a case of just going, okay, well, you just can't have those. We can't have that in any portfolio. There's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect to this of, of supporting businesses while they, um, while they adjust and, and transform, isn't there? I and mean, we can't all just go out and start using electric cars tomorrow, for example. So this is highlighted in the... Um, letter but but Ben this must be a feature of your existing management process as well so can you explain a little bit about how you bring all of these things together um, while manage, managing this transition but also the the overall investment process that you've got to uh, run on behalf of clients yeah so, so the first thing I would say uh, of course is that we're in the business of choice I you know as you were saying there are many differing opinions around all of these different subjects uh, we may have slightly more than $10 trillion, uh, but uh, all of that is yours. None of it is ours, right? So we are in the business of providing uh, options and choices for all of our different uh, customers, stakeholders, if you like, to express uh, their uh, their thoughts and views around this. Now, clearly, I think our framing is that we are living in a world with an increasing focus on decarbonization. That, that isn't uh, just a humble asset manager like BlackRock. That's It seems to to us... Uh, the direction of uh, societies all over the world led by uh, governments who in turn, at least in the democracies, are led by their uh, their people. So that is the mood music and uh, not to get too pretentious, but I always think about um, so Adam Smith, right? Adam Smith, a couple hundred years ago, he's famous for, for one book, uh, The Wealth of Nations. But actually, before that one, he wrote a, a different book, which I prefer, called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which kind of makes the same point, which is, you know, we exist in a world where we're trying to set, uh, I guess, societal norms. Uh, and then capitalism, uh, the power of capitalism is to fit in with those norms in a way which uh, hopefully can help people retire with dignity whilst uh, creating great companies to provide solutions for uh, everything, right? That's the power of capitalism, at least as I uh, see it. And by the way, I think that's kind of, uh, kind of awesome. So actually, to come to your question, uh, firstly, uh, we just, uh, you know, we're humble capitalists existing in the world that we 
uh, exist within, and we need to create a framework which we think will maximally benefit, of course, our, our, our clients. This is uh, obvious, but that framework adjusts over time, right? The world we live in is dynamic, and it feels like, uh, I think we can go beyond it feels like, I think we can say it is the case that decarbonization uh, is becoming more and more mainstream all over the world, governments, regulators, societies, and then, I guess, investors, banks, so, and so forth. Uh, and uh, as Iris was, I think, rightly saying, uh, what that means is you can either try and swim against that tide. That's that's obviously everyone's right, and people can do that if they want to. But perhaps it might be easier to swim with that tide from both the investor's perspective, the company's perspective, and so forth. So I guess uh, where we would be uh, suggesting we want to have more of our uh, focus would be on those companies which are, uh, I guess, firstly, recognizing that there is a tide, right? That would be, I guess, step one. And then two, I guess, for choice, choosing to swim with it rather than against it, because uh, as a rule, swimming with the tide uh, is probably a better risk-adjusted decision than swimming against it. Yeah, and I think uh, you're focusing on this transition. And and by the way, you're you're after my own heart. Quoting Adam Smith in a podcast. That's um that's one for all the economists out there. But um you know this transition isn't going to be easy. And the, and a couple of the things I take out of your um the points you've both made is that um, BlackRock can send quite firm signals to firms about what your underlying investors are saying they want to uh, invest in. Um, And no one's thinking that this is going to be easy. It it is a transition. And I think we've got an example right here in front of us today. We... um, we're seeing oil prices at multi-year highs, which is a function, and it's creating some broader inflation pressures. And that can be linked to people's investment decisions over the years. And the fact that we we don't have a solution right here, right now about decarbonisation, it's going to take, it's going to, it's it's going to be a transition process. And and I think as you um, as you highlight, it's going to be uneven and difficult, and that that creates some equality issues for us. Um, all to think about that are, that, are, that are highlighted in the letter. Iris, I know you've got some more to uh, add to this. Um, the transition, it's, it's not going to be easy, as you both have said, uh, but we do need to make sure that it is just. And the other point in that is there's, we are not in the camp of necessarily fully divesting from all fossil fuels, particularly oil and gas, in order to facilitate that just transition. But the other important point from that perspective and from the stewardship perspective, um, is that, for instance, if you have a comp- an Australian or a New Zealand listed company that is selling one of its more problematic assets and it's selling it either into the private markets, uh, that is not a good net outcome for this net zero ambition because in the private markets, you don't have, again, this transparency and disclosure that you have available in the publicly listed markets. And so as an investor, it's a lot more difficult for us to influence or try to try to encourage better behavior or longer term thinking if it's in the private markets versus if it's in the publicly listed markets. Uh, Conversely, if you're thinking about it from a country perspective, right? And so if you've got a company uh, that's, again, uh, selling assets off to a different jurisdiction, uh, we're we're fortunate in Australia and New Zealand to have um, a very mature corporate governance framework that, again, allows for these investor conversations, for allows for that transparency and that ability to vote against directors to express uh, views on certain topics. 
Whereas perhaps in other markets, uh, they don't have that transparency and disclosure or they don't have the maturity of the capital markets that you have in certain markets. So, uh, you know, it's always a be careful what you wish for. And so that's why it's important that we think about this and frame this through that. It's a just transition, but it also needs to be, uh, you know, it's better sometimes to be inside the tent and try to work through that system than it is to be to just completely divest because you lose some of those very um, useful tools that you have as an investor. I think that's right. I'll jump in there. So, so you know, uh, and by the way, we're never going, sadly, we're never going to have a day where we have this podcast CTB and we go, do you know what? We've solved it all, right? That, that's, that, sadly, <laughs> I think that is, uh, I'm, maybe I'm too bearish, but, uh, you know, this is, as I said, the world is dynamic. Sadly, there are going to be problems uh, which are hard, right, for, for forever, probably forever. Uh, and in a small, humble way, it seems to us as a company, uh, hopefully a responsible company, we want to think about how we can play our part, I guess, uh, societally, uh, moving the ball down the field, our American friends might say. Uh, and uh, and uh, as part of that, of course, providing advice to companies, as Iris does, uh, and then uh, also a broad option uh, opportunity set for our investors, uh, as I say, to hopefully allow them to swim with this tide rather than against it. But to your point, CTB, I mean, this is like super important. Like nobody is saying this is going to be easy or is only going to take sort of the click of the, click of the fingers and we're done. This is going to take something like forever, right? We're going to evolve and progress and there will be opportunities and risks uh, and that will be the same in 100 years time. And, and for us at BlackRock, I think we're trying to be roughly the right side of those opportunities and risks uh, on our behalf and, and critically, of course, on behalf of all of our stakeholders. Yeah, I think those are really good points. And um, I, I really appreciate also, and hopefully our listeners pick up too, that as a, an investment manager, there's a, there's a two-way flow. You're, you're wanting to work out how the world works and, and the best way to invest in it. But investors are giving you information and the companies that you invest in want to know some of these things as well. How do you see capital getting allocated, et cetera? And, and I think um, Iris's role is just fascinating in that. So um, I really appreciate both of your time um, and uh, coming along to discuss these issues that you're raising and identifying on behalf of investors um, all around the world. And for listeners that want to find out more, I think the best place to start is, is actually reading uh, Larry's annual letters. They're easily found on uh, BlackRock's website. And, and for, for this old economist, at least, they make fascinating reading. So uh, thanks, both of you, for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. We can both speak forever on these topics, I think. <laughs> thanks for listening to the ASB Investment Podcast. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, or if there's anything you'd like to discuss on a future show, get in touch at podcasts at asb.co.nz. BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited is a wholly owned subsidiary of BlackRock Incorporated. BlackRock Incorporated is based in the US and is a leading global provider of investment management services, with over US 10 trillion in assets under management as at 31st of December, 2021.